Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. first term as California governor, Jerry Brown said back in 1975, there is no free lunch. This is an era of limits, and we had all better get used to it. Small is beautiful. Was Brown right? These days it seems that establishment thinking and mainstream media believe it is so. Threats from climate change, overpopulation, and environmental degradation, we are told, now force us to reduce consumption and limit growth in order to save the planet and ourselves. My guest in this edition of Humanize takes a radically different and far more optimistic view. Gail L. Pooley has co-authored a book entitled Superabundance, in which he and Marion L. Tupi argue that contrary to the roaring pessimism about the human future so often espoused today, our earthly resources are actually unlimited, and indeed that population increase and innovation are the keys to growing our prosperity. Gail L. Pooley is an Associate Professor of Business Management at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. He has taught economics and statistics at Al-Faisal University in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, Brigham Young University, Idaho, Boise State University, and the College of Idaho. Dr. Pooley earned his BBA in economics at Boise State University and completed his PhD at the University of Idaho. He has published articles in National Review, Human Progress, The American Spectator, The Utah Bar Journal, The Appraisal Journal, Quillette, and Real Clear Markets. Dr. Pooley is a senior fellow with the Discovery Institute Center on Wealth and Poverty and serves on the board of humanprogress.org. He also serves on the Foundation for Economic Education Faculty Network and is a scholar with the Hawaii Grassroot Institute. His major research activity has been the Simon Abundance Index, which he co-authored with Dr. Marion Tupi. Gail, welcome to Humanize. Uh, delighted to be here. Thank you. Are you in Hawaii? No, I'm actually in Utah today. Ah, <laughs> so not not as exotic. <laughs> not quite as green either. So <laughs> your background is in business management and economics. What got you interested in the broader issue of human thriving that you address in your book? You know, I I've always had an interest in this area. Uh, you know, when I was a, a young, uh, I think I was in seventh or eighth grade, we were required to read Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, and uh, that book, 
you know, uh, really kind of said, look, uh, civilization is going to collapse. And the reason it is, is because of overpopulation. And and I came from a family of, of six children. So I thought, wow, my parents must be responsible for this. Um, so it began early on. And then I went uh, off to school and uh, in college, I uh, started to have this interest in economics and uh, my professors introduced me to this guy named Julian Simon. And uh, he had, uh, you know, he had written this book about human beings actually being the ultimate resource. And so it, we had this contrast between Paul Ehrlich's vision of the future and Julian Simon's vision. And around that same time, uh, these two ha- were having this uh, pretty, pretty vocal public argument about what was going to happen in the future. And uh, finally, Simon offered t- to make a bet. And this bet uh, was about the future prices of some non-renewable metals. And he told Ehrlich, look, just pick, pick any non-renewable metal and the bet's got to be more than uh, a year, and I'll bet you they're going to become more abundant. In other words, the price is going to go down. And so they entered into this bet in 1980. Uh, uh, Ehrlich picked five metals, copper, chromium, nickel, tin, and tungsten, and it was a 10-year bet. And um, they put up $1,000, so uh, if it went up by uh, whatever it went up by or down by, uh, the loser would owe the difference of that $1,000 basis in that bet. Well, 1990 comes along and Ehrlich writes a check to Simon for $576. Uh, the real prices had fallen by about 36%. So this why, was. Why is that significant? And why should anybody listening care about that? Well, two reasons. One, uh, if we are really running out of stuff, things should be getting more and more expensive. Okay. Uh, so the opposite happened. Now, recall that that period, the decade of the 90s, we added over 850 million people to the planet. So it was the largest increase of, in population in history. So you have this increase in population at the same time prices are going down. What explains that? Well, economics explains that. And, and that was really kind of the basis for our book as well, is how could you have more people and things become even more abundant or super abundant? And um, so that was the, the, the crux of our research. Gee, when I was uh, your age and you were thinking about Paul Ehrlich, I was probably thinking about baseball and so forth. Some, well, some people I, are just born smart. <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking about it. My teacher made me think about it. it. It was an assignment in a class. <laughs> let me let me ask you. This is interesting because Paul Ehrlich has a and he and he he's still alive and he's continuing with his pessimistic view of things. Um did that impact you? You said you were thinking about Paul Ehrlich and you looked at your family, which is a large, you know, six children in the family. And you thought, gee, maybe that we're causing a problem. Did that affect you emotionally? Yeah, I think it absolutely did. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the tragedy is today we have the same kind of a, a ideology that is influencing people's decisions about is it, is it safe to have children? Um, uh, one of our Congress uh, persons um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently said, is it, is it safe to have children? This concern about the environment and the damage that we're going to have. 
um, you know, should we should we have children? So it clearly, you know, made me think, uh, you know, what really value are human beings? You know, what value does another human br- being bring to the planet? Yeah, you know, it's important, as you know, I um, head the Center on Human Exceptionalism for the Discovery Institute, so we're colleagues. And uh, we've never uh, met or talked before, so I'm really uh, happy that you're on the on the program. But um, it strikes me that there's a there's a lot of pessimism being caused, as you mentioned, happened to you with the Paul Ehrlich uh, issue, with regard to this constant drumbeat that the Earth is in crisis. We're destroying the planet. Uh, you know, human beings are, I mean, I think uh, Richard Attenborough called us a, uh, you know, a plague on the planet, this kind of thing. You've got some very notable people actually engaging in, and you address this a bit in your book, anti-humanism. What impact do you think that has on uh, our overall thriving as a society? Well, it clearly, uh, you know, I mean, everything kind of comes down to to an individual's perception about themselves, their worth and their future. Um, And if you tell someone that the future is bleak and that they are a negative uh, contribution to to life, it's pretty hard to overcome that unless you're you're willing to to go beyond that and ask, why did you why would you say that? What evidence do you have uh, to say that? Is it is it truly a conclusion based on evidence or is it simply an assertion based on an ideology? And yeah, what we, think, yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go so, ahead. So what we, we tried to say is, look, uh, we can actually quantify uh, abundance on this planet and we can measure it. And then we can compare that abundance against population. And uh, what happens when you increase population by, you know, 10% do do things become more or less abundant? And the empirical evidence, just wherever we looked, strongly supported uh, things are becoming more and more abundant. In fact, they become abundant at a faster rate than population increases, which is where we get the title of the book, Superabundance. Right. That, and let's uh, get the, the total uh, uh, t- title of your book, because I think it's interesting. Superabundance, the story of population growth innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Um, I, I found that to be a, a totally, as I read the book, an interesting mix. You mix uh, economics, which frankly make my eyes glaze over, uh, with the history of the human species <laughs> and some philosophy thrown in. Um, it strikes me that you felt the need to write this book, you and your co-author, because of the very potential of nihilism that you were just describing. Would that be accurate? Yes, it would. You know, we kind of, uh, I met the co-author back in 2018. And if you recall, that's when uh, the movie Avengers Infinity War came out. Yeah, and, that's in uh, your book. <laughs> yeah, kind of the leading character there is this guy named uh, Thanos. And he makes this statement in the movie, he said, uh, the universe is finite, its resources finite. Um, you know, if life is, continues, it, it must be checked. And um, so I, I think that what we recognize as economists is, look, resources, uh, atoms are important. We recognize that they're limited, but uh, resources are a function of knowledge. It's when you add knowledge to atoms 
that they become resources, that they become valuable and abundant at the same time. So Thanos had the first part right. Yes, we do live on a planet with a fixed number of atoms, but economics is not about atoms. It's about knowledge. And there's not a the, there does not appear to be a fixed limit in terms of the knowledge that human beings are able to discover. So it's really the reason we say we, we live on an infinitely bountiful planet is because we, uh, we don't see a limit to the discovery of new knowledge, which really is what makes life uh, valuable. So I get this clear. Uh, obviously, the Earth has, as you said, a finite number of atoms. I mean, it's a, it, the Earth is as big as it is. It has the resources that it has. It's inexhaustible, certainly in the near term. I suppose in the long, long term it might be. But you're saying that even then, because of the human ability to innovate and because of our ability to uh, find new ways forward and, and technology, that actually there is no danger of a loss of resources and, and shrinkage. Is that right? Absolutely correct. You know, we grow knowledge faster than we grow people. And that knowledge makes these atoms around us abundant. It's really the difference between our ages, as George Gilder and Thomas Sowell would say, the difference between our age and the Stone Age is entirely due to the growth in knowledge. We, we haven't changed the number of atoms on the planet um, since humanity began. What's changed is, is new knowledge, new valuable knowledge or innovation. Your book uh, distinguishes between what you call time prices and money prices. What's the difference and why does it matter? So, uh, first of all, we recognize that we buy things with money, but we really pay for them with our time. It's how much time does it take you to earn the money to buy something you're interested in? And we can convert. Uh, so, so, what it leads to is it leads to this idea that you really have two prices you have a money price that's expressed in dollars and cents. But you also have a time price that can be expressed in hours and minutes. And the way to calculate a time price is simply what's the money price divided by what's your hourly income. So if you're earning $20 an hour and a pizza is $20, that time price is one hour or 60 minutes. Mm -hmm. So the first step that we take is we convert prices to time, money prices to time prices. So um, that uh, time offers a number of benefits over money in terms of measuring abundance. And uh, one of the first uh, benefits is it lets us transcend all of these issues with CPI and uh, inflation adjustments. We can simply go to uh, a point in history and say, well, what was the price of a loaf of bread in Paris in 1850? And what was hourly income in 1850? How much time did it cost someone to earn the money to buy a loaf of bread. We can do that same calculation today. And it's the change in time prices over time that really reveals whether we're enjoying more or less abundance. So we're simply saying, look, at last year it took you uh, five hours to buy that thing. This year it only takes you four hours. Your life is becoming more abundant because now you can devote less and less time to being able to acquire that thing that you're interested in. But as a, as let's say a consumer, uh, I may not see that. I mean, all I see is, okay, I've gone to the story last year. My loaf of bread cost me four bucks today. It cost me five bucks. 
And so I'm thinking I have less abundance because that's what my checkbook is showing. So if your if your income, however, uh, increase from uh, from ten dollars an hour to fifteen dollars an hour, it's that ratio that's really important. We recognize that uh, you know inflation reports the difference in price level, but it's really the price of things compared to a person's income. That's what really counts. That ratio. And time prices give us that ratio. They contain a lot more information than the money price. Time prices, uh, the denominator there is your hourly income. And we note that innovation shows up both in lower prices and higher incomes. Now, inflation comes along and it's this monetary thing that we pay particular attention to what's happening to not only the price of goods, but people's incomes and We've gone through periods of inflation before. The 70s had this period of inflation. Uh, We're experiencing that once again. But the underlying trend is that these time prices continue to get cheaper and cheaper. So even though I might, on the surface and emotionally, because I see the extra cost of bread in the store, um, think that we're becoming less prosperous, if I take a step back and take a look at how much work I had to do to earn that bread, I might see that I'm actually more prosperous. Yeah. I always got a kick out of my grandpa when I was a kid. He would say, when I was a kid, you know, a Hershey bar only cost five cents. And today it's like a dollar. And I'd say, yeah, grandpa, when you were a kid, you earned like 10 cents an hour. So (laughs) it took you 30 minutes to buy that Hershey bar. You know, today I'm earning like eight bucks or 10 bucks an hour and it takes me one-tenth of an, it only takes me six minutes to buy a Hershey bar. It took you 30 minutes. So I get five Hershey bars for the time it took you to get one Hershey bar. I, I can uh, attest to that in the sense that I worked my way through law school selling televisions at JCPenney. <laughs> and in those days, we sold, uh, let's say, a 25-inch television, television for $500. $500. Today, right. I can get a 42-inch on the wall television that works much better for $250. I know. So not only has the price gone down, but the time it takes me to earn the money to buy the television has certainly gone down. Yeah. So I, I think the first thing that we try to get people to do is think in time. So money's it's it's good to think in money, but if you can go beyond money and think in time, think about how much time it takes you to earn something today and then ask your parents or grandparents how much time it took them to earn something that was similar. And, and we were unable to find anything other than a, a couple of items that were controlled by government that have actually become um, less abundant in terms of the time price. And then you add to that this other thing that's happening in terms of the quality of things. TVs are, are a prime example. It's like your 1980 TV is not the same one that you're going to find at Walmart today. <laughs> Absolutely. And it and uh, it wasn't nearly as good a picture and it didn't do as many things. You know what what one of the things I, I was surprised at in your book and didn't expect to find is that you actually go back to the beginning of humanity <laughs> and and uh you get into some of the things that uh, human beings do that no other species does. And uh one of them, and as I mentioned, I, I get very involved in human exceptionalism, why it's important, why it matters. But this is one of the things I hadn't considered in terms of what makes humans unique. And you write, 
no cases in which one animal gives an unrelated one thing in exchange for a different thing exist in nature except among humans. In other words, trade. You say trade has been an incredibly important aspect of human beings not only um, improving their lot in life, but growing in prosperity, growing in, pro- in, in population, obviously, and having a, a, a better, longer, more abundant life. Trade. Right. Absolutely. We always say, you know, I mean, there are a couple of definitions of economics. And the one I really like is economics is the study of how human beings create value for one another. And it's through this process of trade that we do that. It's like, look, you have something that I like, and I have something that you like more than I like it. Why don't we trade? And we'll both be better off. We both actually walk away from that trade with more value. And we're the only species that really do that. Uh, Not only do we trade with each other like that, we trade across time. It's like, well, if you give me this today, I'll give you something different in the future. Uh, We do that as well. So this ability of human beings to be able to create value for one another in this cooperative way is entirely unique on on this planet. And and in terms of modern language, that requires the rule of law. I mean, you were basically talking about contracts right there, which, of course, as a lawyer, is part of my era of expertise. Right. Our ability to create law, to create agreements with one another, you know, it really depends on the fact that we have we have a language. Yes. <laughs> we we have the logos. We have a language that we can reason with. We can assign meaning meaning to these words, and then we can write them down. And we can agree to things with one another with this with this tool of language. It's really a powerful, powerful tool that human beings possess. It's a, it's really a divine kind of a feature that we have. And and you've seen over the um, incredible millennia of life on the planet. I mean, the dinosaurs were awesome, incredible animals. But they didn't know it. All they saw each other was, you know, is this someone who's going to eat me or is this something that I'm going to want to eat? So you never had the kind of, for the whole history of, of life on the planet, the kind of uh, organization and, and um, economic um, activity because you didn't have it because it was all hunter-gatherer or eat-or-be-eaten kinds, uh, kinds of life. But something different happened with humans. Right. We learned how to cooperate with each other and trust one another. And that, uh, that ability to do that, I mean, fundamentally, what is an economy? An economy is based on people trusting one another. And as we expand those circles of trust, not only, you know, uh, to become tr- worthy of trust, but be able to trust one another, we're able to enrich one another. And, um, yeah, your your observation is exactly right. This ability to do this is is really unique. In your book, you oppose efforts at population control. In fact, you would like to see population grow. That really is kind of a heterodox opinion in this day and age. What what is important about population growth? Well, I think just stepping back just a little bit, I, I don't think we necessarily um, what we what we try to argue is look. Uh, you need to make the decision about how many children you'd like to have. Uh, we don't think the state should require nor limit. We think that individuals should make that decision. But if you're making the decision about how many children to have, 
based on this idea that we're running out of resources, that is a false conception of reality. So do not let that uh, idea affect that decision because it's the opposite. The opposite is the case. So I think back again to what is, uh, what is wealth? You know, how do we create value for one another? George Gilder has this great, uh, and it really is our, our he, he makes this statement. He says there, it's really these three propositions. Wealth is knowledge, growth is learning, and money is time. And we've taken those three propositions and derived this theorem that you can measure the growth and knowledge with time. And our book is about operationalizing that. And we go back to this first idea, wealth is knowledge. Well, where does knowledge come from? It comes from human beings. And so if you're interested in more wealth and knowledge is wealth, you've got to be interested in more people that can create and share and discover and consume knowledge. That's what lifts us is this ability that we have to discover and share and consume knowledge. And that's a human, that's a function of how many human beings that are free to engage in that activity, that are free yeah. to innovate. I think that that's a, and we were going to get into that and will, that's a big part of what you're describing. I mean, you can have a, a, a robust population and a uh, ty tyrannical system uh, and not experience the kind of, uh, growth and prosperity that you're describing in the book. The book makes it very clear that freedom is an essential aspect of that uh, milieu. Right. We kind of think about the equation as being uh, wealth is a function of uh, population times freedom. Some functionals too, because there are a lot of people in China, right. uh, but it wasn't really until 1978, the early 1980s, where they were able to, to enjoy a small measure of freedom and that uh, allowed them to be able to start creating all manner of, of wealth for one another and wealth for the rest of the planet. Uh, so uh, you've got to be able to have human beings and they have to have this freedom to be able to go in this discovery process uh, and the innovation process. Both of those things were let people go out and try to discover things and then share their discoveries with one another in markets, in free markets. Um, that's really where this wealth process um, comes down to. And this program and this and your book isn't about China, but I, I hasten to add that one of the reasons China was able to do well, yes, they took the uh, their boot off the throat of the population to a certain degree, but they also stole from the West. Yeah. <laughs> every, every civilization kind of tends to do that to civilizations that are in front of them. You know, what yeah, can we, so, so what can we take? A, there's, there's more than one way uh, to get yeah. to that prosperity than yeah. freedom. Sometimes you can do it through tyrannical means and basically um, co-opting uh, what other societies or other cultures might have created. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's talk a bit about the difference between technology and the use of tools. You notice, you note in the book that uh, there are some animals that use rudimentary tools, a rock to break open a seed pod or something of that sort, but that's not the same thing as technology. Uh, distinguish those two things. Yeah. So human beings, uh, other, other species, we develop these little tools. Technology, however, is being able to take that tool and create value for your whole, your whole society. Uh, 
being able to take something like writing, uh, being able to take something like mathematics, um, and then share that new knowledge with other members in the society, and then they are able to take that and use that. That really is is this technology can be a way that fundamentally allows us to use knowledge. And knowledge is much different than it's not physical. It, it has this feature about it that it can be shared with another person and I don't lose it. If I have a Snickers bar and I, and I give it to you, I, don't, I no longer have it. But if I have an idea, a concept, a thought, and I share it with another person, I still hold that. So now the amount of knowledge is doubled. If I take a Snickers bar and cut it in half, we each have half as much. But if I share my knowledge with you, we've actually doubled the amount of knowledge. And so knowledge has that feature. And technology re- technology is really, you can think about is we've discovered some something new that's valuable. And we can share that with one another. And the other feature about knowledge is when you consume it, you actually grow it. When I learn something, I grow that knowledge. If I consume a Snickers bar, it's gone. But knowledge, when we consume it, it actually grows. It allows us now to be able to take that knowledge and use it to discover and share other knowledge. It has this exponential, exponential kind of a characteristic to it. And uh, so if you think in if you think in knowledge instead of atoms, um, you, you see a completely different world about the potential and where we've been able to come so far. And then you add in in the book entrepreneurship, uh, the importance of different people taking these different, the knowledges that are shared and then with their own imagination, finding different ways to apply it. Yeah. And the example I, uh, that I love to talk about is Steve Jobs uh, from Apple. You know, here's a kid uh, whose father was born in Syria. So imagine what kind of life his biological father, he was adopted, but his biological father was born in Syria. Imagine what kind of life uh, he would have had if he had been born in Syria. Um, Fortunately for him and for the rest of the planet, he was able to to be born in the U.S. and then grow up in Silicon Valley. So he was in this place where his ability and his agency to be able to explore and share and experiment was was very encouraged. And... um, you know, I, I ask my students sometimes, it's like, well, how many people, how many Steve Jobs are in Syria today? Um, you know, how many of these seeds that are spread around the planet are in places where they really don't have the ability to thrive and grow and flourish? Um, in other the words, ont- there's a, that we're, we're missing something because uh, in a, a right now a failed state like Syria, you might have these incredible entrepreneurs or innovators who are unable to exercise that capacity because they're in a situation of kill or be killed or survival or die. Right. It's like these, it's, I always think about it as uh, these dormant seeds, you know, this, mm-hmm. this parable of the seeds. Well, do you have all these seeds that get spread out and some fall in a, in, a, in a rocky place and some get overtaken by weeds. But some of them have these conditions where, wow, they get the, the right amount of, uh, and I, we think about it as they have the right amount of cultural capital that then allow them to blossom and flourish. And if you think about where are places on the planet where entrepreneurs really can be fully active, I mean, it is the United States, a couple of other places, that's 5 or 10% of the population 
uh, overall have those kind of conditions. So if you were able to have those kind of conditions on the remainder of the planet, imagine how many of these dormant entrepreneurs would suddenly uh, be activated and uh, but the, begin the to share. People, the people like Paul Ehrlich would say, well, if you did that, and you had that incredible prosperity, there would be more use of resources, more pollution, more global warming, and life would actually begin to implode. How are they wrong? Uh, well, first of all, uh, I do. We, we do recognize you at another person on the planet. They are going to uh, cost you some resources. Uh, they are potentially going to create more pollution. Uh, but they're also going to... <laughs> to be able to discover how they can create even more resources and create ways to reduce pollution. Look at where pollution's gone in the U.S. since the 1970s. Uh, air pollution, for example, uh, the particulates in, in our air have just fallen dramatically. As we've added more knowledge, more wealth, we've been able to discover ways that we can have a much healthier, cleaner, greener planet. So, yes, People do uh, come with costs, but they also come with these benefits. And where Ehrlich made the mistake in Malthus and Thanos is they failed to recognize that side of the equation, that these people have the potential to make huge contributions to civilization. And if you limit population, you by definition are going to limit the possibility that, that you're going to have a Steve Jobs, a Elon Musk, uh, type of individual that's going to be able to, to be creative. Where do these guys come to? Elon Musk, why did he not stay in South Africa? He needed to go to a place where he could fully activate his entrepreneurial uh, skill and talent. And that is in a culture that supports that. That's in, a, in an American culture. So it's uh, it, today it's an American culture. Previously, I think it was uh, the English culture back during the Industrial Revolution. So you're you're not talking about um, a um, ethnocentric approach. You're talking about a general culture of freedom, of innovation, of entrepreneurship, and of of uh, basically capitalism. Yeah, I think I'd call it an entrepreneurial centric culture. <laughs> Maybe okay. you know where. And, and it really did. You're right. It started, you know, it, it really took off in uh, in Britain. Before that, you had uh, the Netherlands and um, uh, that little area there that really started to give people uh, opportunities to be free, to experiment. Uh, it kind of jumped over, went to England. England had these physical resources. I mean, it, it, England is really this big chunk of coal. And and with that ability to convert coal into energy, usable, valuable uh, uh, power to be able to then move forward with the Industrial Revolution, they needed to have that ability for the culture to, to tolerate and accommodate and encourage this experimentation. And um, so, yeah, it was really how do we get human beings to be creative and then make the, the largest contributions they can that the rest of us can enjoy in their discovery process. You just made me think of Leonardo da Vinci, who, of course, is probably one of the great geniuses in human history, but he couldn't actually effectuate his ideas because there wasn't the uh, energy, there wasn't the milieu <laughs> in which he could actually try them. 
So right. it isn't just the the uh, the brilliance of a Da Vinci or a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk. Also, all of the various people in a society that are working on these various efforts in their little places lead to a, a, a culture and lead to a technological advancement that then allows certain things to take place and certain certain experiments to be tried. Yeah, you got to imagine that he had these fantastic dreams about what was possible. Then he'd wake up and he was still stuck in this world that just didn't have the they didn't have the technology to be able to put these pieces together to be able to manifest his creations in the real world. They had to remain kind of in his imagination, you know, and on paper. But today, uh, wow, you can go to places and find the talent, find the knowledge and assemble these people together. I, I think about the iPhone and you look at an iPhone and you think, well, did somebody at Apple invent that? Uh, well, you know, there were there, there are thousands, millions, and I like to say there are actually billions of people that are involved in the iPhone. From from all the people that have, have come up with the the technology to the people who support the development, the people who support the transportation of it, the sales, all of these these systems have to be able to cooperate and work together. Apple the company itself, if, if someone were to say, what is Apple? Apple is really a cooperation company. They've been able to figure out how to get millions of people to cooperate with each other to create these products and create this value for the planet. They really are, are uh, fantastic about getting people to cooperate with each other. And that's what an economy is, is how do we get more people to cooperate with more people in such a way that they can enjoy creating value for one another. And it, so, it, it entails, uh, you know, the other factor that was key is they had to have free markets. Markets are where these inventions get tested for their value. Um, you, you've got inventors that are out there doing these inventions, but they have to be able to take these inventions to a free market and let people vote on whether or not they've created value. Because you really don't know until the market, until everybody gets a chance to say, yeah, you've done something here that's valuable. We're willing to now pay you more than it costs you to make this thing. You've created value for us. And it so also can destroy existing prosperity, though, or existing value. I think of the BlackBerry telephone. Uh, when the BlackBerry came out, I became totally excited. You know, I had a BlackBerry, and yet the BlackBerry uh, people did not keep advancing. They kind of sat on their laurels and then Apple and Android and these others came along and BlackBerry was essentially destroyed before BlackBerry. There was a, uh, a company, I forgot the name of it now where you could uh, have your contacts in a, in a little uh, yeah. th uh, carry on with you. And then that palm. got destroyed. Yeah. Yes. The palm. <laughs> and, and so you see this kind of, it's not the same people or the same companies actually, doing all the innovations, you see them rise and then someone else that's like the king of the hill game we used to play as a kid. They get pushed off the hill and then somebody else is there. Then somebody yeah. pushes them off the hill. That's all part of the mix, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, we talk, Joseph Schumpeter talks about this, uh, this idea of creative destruction, Yeah, that you, you have this continuous innovation. It requires this creative destruction that somebody's going to have this temporary monopoly on this product or this idea but that's going to fuel the next, the next innovation. 
And those, uh, those societies that are open to this creative destruction, in other words, societies that are willing to accommodate uh, destruction, that things become obsolete, that we're going to move uh, and allow new entrepreneurs to, to combine and create new products, and we're not going to protect those old products uh, from competition, societies that do that, uh, they always tend to be uh, much more wealthy than societies that protect a status quo. Because that and, leads to sclerosis, doesn't it? Right. You look at places that have done that and it's like, wow. Uh, I mean, if you travel around the world and you go, wow, you guys seem to be 20 years behind here. How come you're not using this current stuff? And if you dig deep enough, you'll discover that that industry is being protected somehow in its, in its market, in its monopoly by some kind of a government uh, regulation. And that's where we also note that when we see a product that doesn't seem to be uh, exhibiting an increase in abundance, it's usually because of some government uh, involvement in that market that's either affecting the supply or the demand that's preventing innovation from really allowing it uh, to, to move forward. Education, healthcare, uh, just a couple of areas where these things, these prices of these things seem to be going up. Why is that? It's because of this level of kind of anti-innovation uh, that's that's happening there. And the current kings of the hill often want government to do that to protect themselves. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, who are you? You see this regulatory capture that occurs where. And, uh, regulation, uh, regulatory agencies set up to to regulate an industry. It suddenly becomes, I mean, very quickly becomes captured by by the industry that they're intended to um, to regulate, and that regulatory uh, agency then becomes the primary opposition to new innovation. Right. And it's through additional regulations, licensing. Um, just this compounding of, of regulations. Uh, we can look at the FDA. We can look at lots of different regulatory agencies. And, and it's like, are you serving the public or are you serving that industry? Yeah, the people who are actually in charge, on, you know, heading the uh, hill at that time. You noticed, I, I noticed in your book, you, you mentioned that uh, people are naturally, apparently attracted to the apocalyptic. <laughs> and um, I think part of that is the creative destruction aspect. We see the destruction, but the creative is less uh, visible. Uh, do you think that's right? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right there. We kind of go with this idea that the people that have survived are people that have been paranoid. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, if I'm walking along and I hear something rustling in the bushes next to me, it's like, well, that could either be a rabbit or a rattlesnake. Yeah. You know, and if I take off running and I find out later that it was a rabbit, it's like, well, I survived and I made a mistake, but I'm still alive. The other mistake is if I hear the, the, the rumbling in the bushes and I think, well, that must be a rabbit. And it turns out to be a rattlesnake. It's like I didn't survive to be able to tell people that I'd made the mistake. So by virtue of simply the survival rate of people that are tend to be paranoid is higher than those who don't. So we have this kind of a, a bias towards being, a, being pessimistic about things because it's what's allowed us to, to kind of survive. So we've got to be able to weigh that against really this cost benefit that that must be done, this idea of trade-offs. And that's where we really get into that idea in economics is, 
look, there's a trade-off with every choice that you make. And uh, are you able to extend your thinking, your critical thinking to to beyond just looking at the costs of something and weigh the benefits? Once again, where Ehrlich and Thanos and Malthus made their mistakes is they looked at the cost, but they didn't look at the benefits. And as a consequence, they they drew uh, a faulty conclusion. You uh, get into uh, the China one-child policy in the book. Uh, explain why that was such a catastrophe, because China at the time, and of course it was, let's leave out the tyrannical part because it was an utter uh, tyrannical authoritarian policy. But at the time, China was looking at its exponential growth of population, and it was it was um, thinking that it would be swamped in the way you say that Ehrlich has said that resources will be swamped. So it tried to get a handle on that, and it led to worse consequences than even they were worrying about with regard to population growth. Get into that just a bit. Yeah, I think uh, the issue once again with China is the leadership in China uh, picked up on these ideas from Ehrlich. And in 1973, you had this other book, The Limits to Growth. You had lots of this kind of pessimistic uh, 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 ideology that was uh, you know, ostensibly related to, well, we have this computer model that's making these forecasts and our model is suggesting that this is going to happen. Therefore, We've got to uh, restrict population because it all seems like it's driven by an increase in population. You're going to use more resources. You're going to cause more pollution. Uh, you're going to run out of things. That model is very compelling um, if you don't really uh, compare it to history. <laughs> and you go back and say, well, we can go back to 1800 and look. We had a billion people on the planet in 1800. And we were from a billion people to four point. Uh, you know, three and a half, four billion people in 1975, what happened to people's life expectancy, to their overall health, to their, uh, to their standards of living over this period of time? And uh, so I think that the, the problem that China had is they, they, they looked at this ideology that had this uh, hypothetical theory about uh, a model, really, about what was going to happen in, in the future, and they bought into that model. And as a consequence, they said, well, they really did the Thanos thing. Uh, look, uh, we're going to run out of stuff if we don't stop population. And they fundamentally misunderstood that the key to creating wealth was more people, because more people means more discovery of new ideas more inventions, more potential innovations, more lifting the rest of civilization out of poverty. So they completely missed that. And I, you know, last five, 10 years, they've recognized that that was a huge mistake, that our key resource in China is, uh, is, is our human beings. That's what's going to allow us to create value. And, and the Chinese uh, culture is incredibly entrepreneurial if it's allowed to be. Right. If you go, <laughs> you go anyplace else on the planet where Chinese go, and it's like the Chinese seem to be just these incredible entrepreneurs wherever they go. And historically, you go back to 1500, and what was the most advanced entrepreneurial place on the planet? You know, it was China. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't Europe. It was China. And so you would expect that to happen. And 
these political changes occurred and that that culture, instead of looking outward, they turned inward. And that inward turn is what, uh, uh, you know, set them back 500 years. So and, the things that uh, against which you're warning and, and which you're criticizing in your book really has led to a lot of misery and even uh, authoritarianism, it seems to me. Yeah, we say that... Uh, we say that this ideology of scarcity yes. it has been the most harmful virus to ever afflict humanity. And it, it, back, to this, um, back to this idea that our resources, atoms, yeah, atoms play a part, but resources are really knowledge. And once you recognize that, you realize that we really don't have a scarcity of atoms. We can rearrange these atoms in all kinds of different ways. We take something as simple as sand. Uh, you know, 4,000 years ago, we discovered if you take sand and you heat it up, you can turn it into glass. And then we keep working this glass and we figure out how to turn this glass in, make it clear, turn it into windows, turn it into all of these valuable things. We have figured out how to turn this, this sand into computer chips and fiber optic cables. Well, it's the same sand but it's, yeah. it's the knowledge that we've added to these atoms that really make them much more valuable and much more abundant at the same time. I always say that all of our products are really knowledge. Some of them have atoms. <laughs> That's good. There is a, a counter uh, argument, though, that innovation, of course, does the things you say, but it can also be used in a destructive way. For example, nuclear weapons really do have the ability uh, and power to cause an apocalypse if we're ever stupid enough to unleash them. So how does a, a um, robust culture direct um, these innovations in a positive way and, and try to thwart the application in a way that could be so destructive? That's probably a book somebody else could have to write. <laughs> <laughs> but it is important to consider, it seems yeah. to me. Yeah, it's absolutely, you know, I say that a uh, little bit tongue-in-cheek because I think whenever you have the any kind of a new innovation has these costs and benefits. The printing press, uh, you know, a huge threat to uh, the existing institutions. Now, nuclear power is a little bit different because it's dealing with humanities it, itself. Uh, we clearly could destroy ourselves with the technology that we um, possess. Uh, and people like Elon Musk are talking about AI, artificial intelligence, having the ability to destroy us. I don't know if that's true, but uh, I do think we do. We have to keep in mind, uh, also like with biotech, the CRISPR technology of, of gene editing and so forth. These are the most powerful technologies, I think, in the history of humankind. And I, it does seem to me that they can't just be um, uh, allowed to in a wild, wild west kind of milieu because you do need to have some regulation to make sure they stay in a positive uh, approach rather than one that could lead to unintended consequences or even intended consequences. Yeah, I think the issue is always who gets to decide. Who's going yeah. be who's going to be the person that decides what's going to be allowable and what's not? Um, we try to resolve that politically. Uh, by voting uh, for leaders uh, that can make those decisions for us, but we don't really have 
that great of a track record. Um, yeah, and and I worry about a technocracy, which would lead to a you know a rule so by so called experts. But it seems to me that during COVID, we saw that didn't work. Right. And, uh, I mean, we go back in time and we can see all kinds of periods where we've had episodes of the, the experts or the technocracy that have, have either prevented us from uh, doing something we should have or have said, oh, yeah, this is, this is safe and effective. Let's do this. And later on we find out, well, that wasn't, that wasn't actually uh, viable. I think part of what maybe uh, one contribution that we see from um, – uh, you know, certain thinkers is, look, we have to have markets where people compete. This competition uh, potentially could give us the ability to be able to filter out ideas that are valuable and those that are not. Clearly, we're going to have people that are going to possess certain technologies and weapons and so forth that could be very destructive. And we've got to explore how we check uh, check that. But I mean, you think about it today, what would you do to reduce the threat of, of uh, you know, this problem with Russian expansion into Ukraine? What are we willing to do to prevent that? Yeah, and, and the potential for getting back to China to go into Taiwan and whether Taiwan's part of China and so forth, that's beyond our scope. But there's a lot to consider with regard to the human uh, innovation and technology, because if it goes in the wrong down the wrong street, we could be in real trouble. But it's interesting. Um, you argue that the poor have been the chief beneficiaries of modern capitalism, and you gave a statistic that really caught my attention. You wrote that globally, people live twenty two years longer today than the richest people did in nineteen hundred. That's that's a remarkable statistic when you think about it. And and I and and if that is true, and I, I don't have any reason to think it isn't isn't true, why is socialism and collectivism having such a a pull on people? That's a really really good question. When we're dealing with the human being and their perception of their their uh, status, if you might think of it that way. Uh, Jordan Peterson makes this interesting observation, I think, in his book, 12 Rules. I think it's rule number four. He says something about, you know, it's better to compare yourself to who you were yesterday instead of who someone else is today. When you begin comparing yourself to who someone else is today, you always, you're always going to be a loser <laughs> because mm. you can always find somebody that's richer, smarter, more attractive, uh, whatever than you are. But if you compare yourself instead of across space, if you compare yourself across time and yep. look at where you were yesterday, your parents, your grandparents, you'll realize, wow, I can be nothing but pro profoundly grateful for where I am today. Not only grateful for where I am, but I have to be grateful for the sacrifices that all those people have made before me <laughs> that chose to live a less uh, uh, abundant life and made sacrifices so I could have more today. So I and, think that's part of it is this perspective problem that people have when they when they look at someone else that has more and they're immediately told by someone the reason they have more is because they've taken or they've stolen or they've gotten these things by uh, exploitation. You have this sense, well, you know, fairness requires that I take back. So that that ideology can be very attractive to someone 
who has a perspective has the wrong perspective on um, their their circumstances. You you write that uh, you know perfection is impossible, but I think one of the uh, great threats in society is utopianism. The idea that we can somehow create a perfect heaven on earth or paradise on earth. And when you get into utopianism, the ends justify the means. Uh, but eventually the uh, the means become the ends. And, and that's why there's a difference between, say, the American Revolution and the French Revolution. Right. And uh, the utopianism of, of the modern moment uh, across various uh, cultural issues, I think, is is what is striking and and what is causing the kind of turmoil that we're witnessing with regard to uh, so many, especially the young, rejecting many of the things that you're defending in this book. Right, utopianism really is is deadly because you're taking a, a reality and you're comparing it to something that's not real. You know, utopia yes. mean not a place, it's not real. And this idealization of these, uh, you know, equality and prosperity that we can have all these things if we just allow someone to be in charge of, of making this happen, uh, you know, has never ever happened. And I think part of uh, this current generation's uh, problem is they, they just have not familiarized themselves with history or with the facts of what what life used to be like, what those ideas have led to in the past. They're not new ideas. They've been around since, since Adam and Eve, really. And uh, those ideas have always led to this consequence that's been, it's been a terrible consequence. And Someone who speaks about this today, it's like, you need to read some more history. And um, people need to think more than feel. Uh, one of the bugaboos I have is we become su- such an emotive, kind of subjective over overall society. Where You know, when you feel, I, I might feel angry today about something, that, those are feelings. But if I think I'm about something, I have to give reasons for it. And if it's all just emotionalism, then we lose that capacity of reason and rationality that you point out in the book has led to so much growth in the human species. But we are emotional creatures. We are. <laughs> so how do we how do we move people from uh, you know from from this emotion based decision to a rational decision? It really has to be this combination of both. It's I mean, it, it's rational to, to recognize that there are emotions that people have and feelings. It's like, can you now think about how you feel? You've got to be able to, to go beyond just feeling. You've got to think about why right. you feel that way. Right. Because if I feel something is right today, I might feel differently tomorrow. And there's no, it's like a, a house built on sand cannot stand. But if I think about what I feel, then we you can engage in that analysis. Why am I angry? Is this anger actually justified and so forth? So I, I think that's a topic for a whole nother conversation, but I think right. that's also part of the equation. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I do want to get into uh, what you list as the enemies of progress, and you list them as Marxism, fascism, racism, and radical environmentalism. Uh, why, why are those enemies of progress? Well, if progress is a fun, if wealth, you know, if we define progress is creation of new valuable wealth and wealth is knowledge, who are the enemies of knowledge? 
you know, who are the enemies of discovering and creating new knowledge? If you're a Marxist and you believe we're going to divide people by class, you're racist, we're going to divide people by race. If you're a fascist, if you're an environmentalist, all of these ideologies, ideologies come down to we live in a, a situation where there's a fixed number of resources and we're going to fight with one another to divide those resources up. We're going to have these uh, fights between classes, between races, uh, between genders. Uh, we're going to have these battles over a fixed amount of resources. So being able to say, look, we do not live on a planet with a fixed number of resources. We don't need to look at one another as competitors. We need to look upon one another as collaborators, joint collaborators in this discovery and sharing of knowledge. So these ideologies that put one put us against one another really prevent us from, from getting on learning curves and being able to, to create wealth from one another. So uh, the, the, um, the environmental movement, their obsession with this idea that we have a fixed number of resources, that we are, we're causing these changes to the planet, uh, that we need to protect the planet first, the planet has a higher value than human beings, um, that ideology is going to lead you down a path that is not going to be helpful uh, for you personally or for the rest of humanity or the planet for that matter. Uh, we note that where people have been able to create new knowledge, those are the cleanest places on the planet where people live the longest, where they have the most enjoyable lives, where they can control <laughs> the temperature in a room, um, where they can thrive. And that requires people having this freedom to innovate and create new wealth. If we, if we step up and arbitrarily say, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to fight over this limited number of resources. Uh, we're going to have civilizations that are simply going to collapse over these disputes. What is the Simon Abundance Index? The Simon Abundance Index is uh, once again, it's based on uh, Julian Simon's work and it looks at the time prices of 50 basic resources, begins in 1980. It says, what did it cost a person to buy these 50 basic resources, the time price? And then it compares that time price over time. Each year we come up with a value of what, that, uh, what that's changed. And so we start the index at a value of 100 and it's a function of how much more abundance that people are having and multiplied times the population. So uh, we go back to this simple question of um, if you have an increase in population, but the price of something's not increasing, what does that mean? Well, it must mean that you're increasing the quantity of that product as fast as the population is growing. Pizza, for example. What if the price of pizza Population increases, but the price of pizza stays the same. What is that suggesting? It's suggesting that you're able to discover and grow more pizzas. Hmm. Well, if we think about these 50 basic resources, we, it was really inspired by this bet that Ehrlich and Simon had. They had had right. five resources they looked at. And one of the criticisms was, hey, they only looked at five resources. Uh, Simon was lucky. And it only lasted for 10 years. Simon was lucky. And we said, okay, we'll expand it from these five to 50. So we look at energy, we look at food, we look at material, we look at metals, uh, we look at minerals. 
And then we extended it. Uh, you know, now it's been, we've looked at it for the last 40 years. And on the average, the time price of these 50 basic commodities, and we picked these commodities because the commodities really hasn't changed. I mean, a, a bushel of wheat is a bushel of wheat today. It really hasn't changed, unlike a car or, or a TV. So it's this fundamental commodity. Well, what we discovered is that the commodity prices had fallen about 75%, which means you walk into the store today and everything's 75% off. It means I get four now for the price of one. So uh, your personal abundance had increased by 300%. I went from one to four. I get 300% more of that thing. So on a personal level, on the average, people's personal resource abundance had increased by about 300% over this 40-year period from 1980 to 2020. Now, at the same time, population increased by about 75%. So you had two things happening. The size of everybody's slice of their pizza was getting larger, but we're also getting more slices. Hmm. So we have these two dimensions. If you think about the global resource as being the size of a pie, the pizza, What's happening to that? Well, it's growing from two to two respects. Each person's slice is getting larger, and we're also getting more slices. So this pie is getting bigger, bigger in two dimensions. That's what the Simon Abundance Index measures. So our most recent, uh, our most recent value on that, I think, was uh, five twenty, which is it went from one hundred to five twenty uh, over this course of about twenty, about forty two years now. And what that means is that we have 5.2 times more abundance today on the planet than we had in 1980. And, and people, uh, if you told people that, I think they would say that can't be right because they're not seeing it somehow. Well, asks, uh, what I ask somebody is, okay, go back to where you were in 1980 and your life in 1980. What did it cost you to buy a TV at JCPenney's in 1980? Well, it was 500 bucks. And I'm earning... In 1980, I think I was earning $5 an hour, you know, one of my first jobs. That means that TV cost me 100 hours of work. Today, I can go to Walmart. I can get a 32-inch LCD uh, TV for under $100, and I'm making like $35 an hour. So that TV went from 100 hours down to three hours. Tell me that you're poorer. Today, your TV abundance has increased by a factor of over 30. That doesn't so by, <laughs> consider the quality changes. By every rational basis, you're saying we are getting better, and yet somehow uh, so many people think we're getting worse. And that's why I think your book is so important. People need to see that there's another way of looking at this. Uh, and and perhaps a greater prosperity, though, does lead to a bit of expectation uh, unreasonable expectations as to uh, how much better things should continue to get. I mean, we may have some, uh, we may have been spoiled by our past success. That's absolutely true. <laughs> uh, it's absolutely true. And I think you've, you'll see societies that once they hit a certain level of prosperity, they don't seem to be as motivated to go out and try to work and innovate as, as, more, as much. And that's why we have to be open to, you know, this idea of immigration, of hoping other countries that are, are still on this curve of, of moving forward, this entrepreneurial 
centric uh, kind of a culture. We're hoping that that culture spreads to other places where we can continue to have these incentives and these opportunities for creative people to be able to to get on board, to begin to participate in this global economy of of learning and uh, knowledge discovery. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion. What next for Gail Pooley? Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm an old guy. <laughs> <laughs> so I think what's next is just, you know, our hope really is that people will, will come to realize how 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 abundant life is today and um, how that abundance has come about because other human beings are creative and they're free and they're willing to share the things that they've discovered with one another. So for young people today, don't let uh, this pessimism that's really a false pessimism uh, overwhelm you. That, that look at what's happened in the past, look at where we've been able to come and where we're at today and the potential going forward to be able to, to lead a life that's going to be a very, very uh, abundant life and, and how we're able to share this with, with other people. What do you want to do with your life, young person? What contribution can you make? And to stand up and be pessimistic that doesn't take any energy or creativity at all. You're right. You're right. You know, that, be an, be an entrepreneurial person. Yeah. Be, be, you know, think about your potential. What can you do for humanity that, that is going to be your little small contribution? And if each and every person, each 8 billion people on this planet make these tiny little bits of discovery and contribute that to us, Wow we have this potential to solve all kinds of problems. Well, I think that your book, Superabundance, is, is going to help lead that way. Thank you for being with me, Dr. Okay, Pooley. I appreciate it. Very good. Thanks again. Take care. Bye now. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.